What's up everybody? Jen, ex-dividend investor here. I've been thinking of running a contest for a really nice prize and was thinking maybe I would ask people to DM me or email me how many thumbs up, including that one, I've used in all of my videos combined. Maybe the first three people to communicate the right answer would win, with one grand prize and then two smaller prizes. I think that would be a neat thing to do. Anyways, I'm still noodling on what would be a fun contest. I'll probably do this after my 25th stock review video, at which point I'll follow whatever YouTube's guidelines are for contest running. Stay tuned, but be on the lookout to respond. Did you know that if you invested $1,000 in AbbVie's original parent company, Abbott Laboratories, when they IPO'd, you would have $10 million right now? That's right, a 10,000 bagger. And did you know that during World War I, we didn't have access to Novocaine because Germany was the only supplier of it, and we were, you know, at war with them? Keep watching to learn about what we did to make sure our soldiers had the painkillers they needed, as well as a bunch of valuable information on AbbVie that you need to hear if you want to maximize your returns with dividend investing. Today, in this ninth stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of AbbVie, as well as show you details on 9 of the 25 stocks in my dividend portfolio, sharing info such as how many shares I have, and speaking as someone who is very passionate about dividend investing, and you can be assured is coming from a real skin in the investing game perspective. I'll also show you screenshots of any dividend checks I've received since my last reveal video from either Disney, Pfizer, Home Depot, Chevron, Travelers, Goldman Sachs, Starbucks, or AbbVie. And if you know anyone that already has AbbVie or is thinking about investing in it, please share this video with them. Feel free to check out the timestamps in the description below if you want to jump straight to the portfolio section of this video, though it would mean the world to me if you watch or listen to the whole video as a simple way to thank me for my efforts. Finally, I want to call out a few subscribers and channel creators that have commented on my last two videos. I really appreciate it. So our heartfelt thank goes out to All Good, Bob Wright, Feeding You Information, Hidden Freedom Investing, Passive Income Tom, Adventures in Us Investing in Fire Movement, Investing with Jason, David Caruana, JMac Investing, Economic Lifestyle Investing, Blood Phantom 81, Citizen of the Year, Minds in Motion, Dividend Growth Investing, Investing Education, Informed Trades, Day Trading Investing, Manny the Average Investor, Sam T, Travis Williams, and a special thank you to Henrik Tenenbeck, who helped me debug an audio issue. Please check out their channels if they have one, and just be awesome to all of them. I love this financial community and I'm really grateful to be a part of it. I'll put links to their channels in my description below. Okay, so as is customary in my deep analysis videos, I'm going to cover AbbVie's industry, history, competitors, financials, business strategies, leadership, concerns and risks you need to be aware of, what price I would buy it at, and a bunch of other useful information you need to know. AbbVie is a dividend aristocrat and is the 17th largest stock by market value in my dividend portfolio. After this video I've got another 16 more stocks to go until my entire portfolio is revealed. At that point I'll be able to do videos like how I would invest if I was just starting out, tell you what stocks I'm currently buying, etc. I've got a huge backlog of video ideas that are just chomping at the bit for me to create once I make it through my entire portfolio. AbbVie is a biopharma company founded in 2013 as a spinoff of Abbott Laboratories, which itself was founded 131 years ago in 1888. AbbVie focuses on discovering, developing, and delivering medicines for a variety of areas, including immunology, oncology, virology, and neurosciences. They have a market cap of about $110 billion and revenues of over $30 billion. 
To give you another sense of their size, I included this graph from Statista on the number of employees they have. As you can see, they have around 30,000 for the last few years, whereas before they were growing much more rapidly. Apvi has some blockbuster drugs you have no doubt heard of, such as Vicodin, which is a painkiller, and they have some you might not have heard of, such as Humira, which is their drug that treats different types of arthritis, as well as Crohn's disease, amongst others. Humira is where they get most of their revenue, as I'll show you later. So when did I buy into Abvi? Well, I always like to keep a pulse on dividend aristocrats, and as Abvi stock fell from its high of 122 in January of 2018 into the 60s in Q3 of 2019, it got more and more compelling to me. So I jumped in with a few hundred shares, even though they have a variety of risks, the biggest I saw being that Humira was coming off patent protection in 2023, which means other companies could make similar drugs or buy or similars, which would then drive down Abvi's revenues. But the number of shares I bought is paltry compared to Vanguard, who is the largest institutional shareholder in the world at over an 8% stake, which is around 121 million shares worth almost $9 billion. Abfi is also held in funds that many people recognize, such as SPDR and VTSMX. Their number one shareholder that I could find is Richard Gonzalez, their CEO who owns 335,000 shares of Abvi worth around $25 million. That means he makes around $1.5 million a year in passive income just from holding Abvi in his brokerage account. That makes my 474 shares dripping $2,028 look pretty piddly. But as I like to say, there will always be people with larger portfolios than you and people with smaller portfolios than you. That doesn't matter. What matters is if you are taking actions today to better yourself for tomorrow. Okay, let's look into their key competitors. Per Owlers, the top 10 competitors for AbbVie are Amgen, Novo Nordisk, GSK, Sanofi, Pfizer, Novartis, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Merck, Genentech, and Gilead. I'll use Amgen as their number one competitor in this video to compare them against. Amgen is an American multinational biopharmaceutical company that sells drugs like Enbrel, which is used in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. They have a market cap of $121 billion and have around 5,000 employees. Okay, let's go over the biopharma industry. The entire biopharma business is very complex, but I'll distill it down to make it easy to understand. At the core of what happens is that they develop drugs for their patients who need them. There is a massive R&D process to create a new drug. Then it has to go through a bunch of clinical trials to ensure that the drugs are safe for consumption. Then there is a long and challenging regulatory process that it needs to clear. If they do clear that regulatory hurdle, then they still need to pass financial thresholds to merit the payers and pharmacy benefit managers to feel they are viable. Then the drugs need to go through a marketing process, and then of course doctors and the medical community need to feel that the drug is worth it. To make real profit, they need to go through these steps while they maintain their exclusivity to maximize return, knowing that better drugs could always be discovered by their competitors. Here are a couple slides that explain how the drug approval process works in layman's terms. It starts in the pre-clinical phase where the biopharma sponsors a discovery and screening phase. So this is where a company develops a new drug and seeks to have it approved by the FDA for sale in the US. First, they have to test the drug on animals for toxicity. Multiple species of animals are used to gather safety and other information. I know that can be tough to hear. If that phase passes successfully, then the biopharma submits an investigational new drug application or IND application. This application includes a variety of information such as what the plan is for testing the drug on humans. 
Then they go into phase one testing, where they pick 20 to 80 human volunteers to determine what the drug's side effects are and how it is metabolized and secreted. If that looks positive, then they go into phase two testing, where they typically use hundreds of patients to get data on if the drug works as they believe it will. So those patients have a certain disease or condition that they hope will be helped by the drug they are testing. If phase two looks positive, then they go into phase three testing, where they typically get thousands of patients to try the new drug out. And this is where they might test different dosages or maybe test the drug in combination with other drugs or test it on different demographics. If this all is looking good, then the biopharma meets with the FDA to do a review. The company submits an NDA application to seek approval from the FDA to market and sell the drug in the US. This application will have all the animal and human data analysis that was gathered. Then the FDA has two months to decide whether everything looks appropriate to file so they can be reviewed later to evaluate the drug's safety and effectiveness. The FDA then reviews the proposed drug labeling to ensure all the correct information is communicated. The FDA will also do things like inspect the facilities where the drug will be made and then ultimately the FDA approves or declines the drug. There are processes companies can utilize to fast-track things, such as if the drug treats life-threatening diseases and they need to get into people's hands. If the drug is approved, then it makes it into the last phase called Phase 4. Phase 4 is where the FDA continues to monitor safety issues to detect serious unexpected adverse events as well as take action if that happens. Drug companies are required to submit periodic safety updates to the FDA. I wonder if there are countries out there where a lot more drugs get out that end up harming the population at a greater level than we have in the U.S. Comment below if you know. If you go to AbbVie's website, you can see some of the drugs and where they are in the submittal process in terms of if they're in phase 1, 2, or 3, as well as if they submitted the application and if it was approved. So, for example, here you can see on the bottom that Humira has been approved, whereas AbbVie 323 is being investigated to treat ulcerative colitis. If it ends up being successful, then the company will give it a brand name and sell it. By the way, please watch my Pfizer video if you want to learn some other aspects of the biopharma industry and dig deeper into another competitor of AbbVie's. AbbVie is ranked 96 on the Fortune 500 of the largest public U.S. companies by revenue, and Amgen is ranked 129. And then on the Fortune Global 500, we see that AbbVie is ranked 381 between 3M and Chubb. Amgen didn't make the top 500. Neither AbbVie nor Amgen were in the top 50 of Fortune's World Most Admired Companies or Fortune's Top 100 World's Most Valuable Brands. Looking at the statistics chart, we see that AbbVie and Amgen aren't in the top 10 most recognized farmer companies by name. However, AbbVie was ranked as one of the best employers for new grads in 2019 according to Statista. Who would have figured that? Not me. They must have a really cool culture there. Okay, now let's hear about AbbVie's history. So since AbbVie's history actually started in Abbott, let's go into a brief history about Abbott. Wallace Abbott founded the Abbott Alkaloid Company in 1888. At the time, he was a practicing physician and owned a drugstore. He created a way for more consistent and effective dosages of medicine stemming from his work with alkaloids. In his first year, he had sales of around $2,000. In the early 1900s, he expanded outside the U.S. with an office in England. And then World War I came, and we ran into a big problem. Our soldiers needed painkillers, and one of the best ones on the market was Novocaine, which was unfortunately only manufactured in Germany. So Abbott came to the rescue and developed anesthetics like Procaine, as well as a breakthrough antiseptic, to ensure our troops had what they needed. 
These innovations helped their revenues skyrocket. Abbott went public in 1929, and since then their stock has increased in value by 10,000x so far. Abbott was also vital to us during World War II as they produced penicillin in large quantities for our troops. In 1985, Abbott developed the first diagnostic test for AIDS. In 2002, they got FDA approval of Humira, the first fully human monoclonal antibody drug. It went on to become the world's leading pharmaceutical product. And then in 2013, they spun off AbbVie, which was their pharmaceutical business. Abbott maintained the other parts of the business, which included medical devices. Okay, let's look at some of their current business strategies. They articulate three main strategies on their website. Number one, develop a consistent stream of innovative new medicines. Number two, grow access to on-market products. And number three, continue to enhance our culture. This slide articulates what their strategies were when they formed versus what they are from now until 2022. I pulled it from their 2017 strategic update presentation. Their mission is to create an innovation-driven, patient-focused specialty biopharmaceutical company capable of achieving sustainable top-tier performance through outstanding execution in a consistent stream of innovative new medicines. Their stated goals are to number one, advance their pipeline, number two, drive strong commercial execution with new product launches, number three, effectively manage biosimilar erosion, number four, deliver operating margin expansion while continuing to invest in their promising pipeline, and number five, maintain an enduring commitment to return cash to shareholders and deliver outstanding shareholder value. As an investor, I love the articulation of seeing a commitment to return cash to shareholders. I always want the companies that are using my cash to remember who they're working for. A final key strategy of AbbVie's to continue to enable growth and attempt to mitigate their over-reliance on Humira is seen in AbbVie's acquisition of Allergen. So, AbbVie's agreed to buy Irish drug maker Allergen, a company most well known for Botox, in a large deal that would combine two of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies into a single more diversified company. And diversified is a term I like to hear when I think of AbbVie. Founded in the 1950s, Allergen acquires, researches, develops, and markets brand name drugs. The company has revenues of $15 billion annually and employs almost 18,000 people worldwide. Allergen shareholders will receive 0.866 AbbVie shares and about $120 in cash for each Allergen share they hold, totaling $188.24 per Allergen share, which is a 45% premium to Allergen's closing price on the day it was announced a few months ago. They estimate the deal will generate at least $2 billion in annual pre-tax synergies and other cost savings within three years, and will lift adjusted EPS by 10% in the year after the transaction closes. AbbVie expects Allergen to bolster the scale and profitability of its business and diversify its revenue streams with its medical aesthetics division and other segments. It predicts the deal will enhance its ability to fund research and development, expand its global reach, and generate healthy returns it can use to finance dividends, invest in new treatments, and pay off debt. This will give them a combined revenue of $48 billion and they will be operating in 175 countries. So hopefully this purchase will resolve the potential issues with Humira losing some patent protection down the road. If you are watching this play out, you'll remember that the market didn't exactly react positively to the news. I think there's a few reasons for this. Number one is that Abbey will take on a lot of debt, going up to almost 100 billion, which isn't a trivial amount. It also means risk due to our volatile interest rates, though that could play out in their favor. Finally, Allergen always ha hasn't hit its street guidance, so I think all those factors kind of drove the stock down.
that combined with the fact that the company that is doing the buying usually goes down in stock price and the company that's being bought normally goes up. Let's dive into their financials. There are four key financial areas I'd like to understand when I'm analyzing a business. Number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? Number four, how is their profitability? Let's start with number one. There are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And those are, number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five, is the dividend growing consistently over a decent period of time? And number six, is the stock price growing over a decent period of time? Let's start with number one of six. So let's look at the revenue growth history for both AbbVie and Amgen using macrotrends.net. And unlike all the other businesses we've looked at that have multiple business segments, AbbVie has just one, which is pharmaceutical products. In 2018, AbbVie had $32.8 billion in revenue, which was a 16% increase over 2017. In 2017, they had $28.2 billion in revenue, which was a 10% increase of over 2016. And in 2016, they had $25.6 billion, which was a 12% increase over 2015. I also include the analyst estimates for revenue increases from Guru Focus, and we see that by 2020, they are predicting $33 billion of revenue, $39 billion in 2021, and then down to $37 billion for 2022, probably due to the Humira patent issues. In 2018, Amgen had $23.7 billion revenue, which was a 3.9% increase over 2017. In 2017, they had $22.8 billion in revenue, which was a minus 0.6% decrease over 2016. And in 2016, Amgen had a $23 billion revenue, which was a 6.1% increase over 2015. Analysts estimate $22.7 billion in revenue in 2020, $23.8 billion in 2021, $24 billion in 2022, and $25.1 billion in 2023. So if AbbVie can better address the probable loss of revenue due to losing their Humira patent wall, then they will look a lot better. Otherwise, Amgen looks better here. We see that both AbbVie and Amgen have an awesome trend of revenue increases at both large bases, with Amgen having more history since they've been an independent entity for longer. AbbVie has an amazing 11.7% revenue compound annual growth rate from 2013 to 2018. So AbbVie looks better here due to larger increases and consistent increases over the last few years. Let's check out their revenue by geographic region. Here we see a chart by Statista of AbbVie's revenue by region, and we see that they are growing both domestically and internationally, with significantly faster growth at a higher base in the U.S., but still about a third of their revenue coming internationally in 2018. So I'd love to see some regional diversification like that. Let's see what their product mix looks like in terms of contribution towards revenue. So we see that about 20 billion of their 32.7 billion in revenue came from Humira. That's the main concern, an over-reliance on one blockbuster. But that is a little bit understandable when you see how big of a blockbuster Humira has been. As you can see in this chart by Statista, Humira made more revenue than any drug in the world in 2018. But when so many of your eggs are in one basket, there can be risks. So what AbbVie has done is to try to protect that egg with patents up the wazoo. Management has dozens upon dozens of patents to protect Humira from other competitors who are not only trying to develop their own similar versions of the drug, but they also go after one another in court over a variety of potential issues, which ultimately can break down their patent shield. Now companies like AbbVie often do better to produce high-margin expensive drugs for a small user base that is reliant on them, 
than to produce low margin drugs that are desired by a large consumer base. And that's not necessarily intuitive, but that's how it works for biofarmers. So you need to understand their current patent pipeline and what actions they're doing to ensure their pipeline is robust if you are serious about investing in biopharmas. So if you produce really high margin expensive drugs for a relatively few number of patients, another grim reality to be aware of is that sometimes your consumers might not unfortunately be alive long enough to benefit from your drugs, which can mean that a drug that pulls in income one year won't necessarily be relied upon in the next year. Okay, let's move on. Number two of six are earnings growing. So for AbbVie, we see that in 2018, they had 5.7 billion in net income, which was a 7.1% increase over 2017. And in 2017, they had 5.3 billion, which was down 10.8% from 2016. And in 2016, they had 5.9 billion, which was a 15.7% increase over 2015. Now for Amgen in 2018, they had 8.4 billion in net income, which is a 324% increase over 2017. And in 2017, they had 1.98 billion, which was a 74% decrease relative to 2016, where they had 7.7 billion, which was 11.3% higher than 2015. So I like AbbVie's less volatile trend, but Amgen yielded more overall profit over that time period. Number three of six is equity growing. Here we see that AbbVie went negative recently, while Amgen went up and then started declining. Looking at AbbVie's balance sheet, we see some big reasons why shareholders' equity has turned negative, including that their long-term debt has increased significantly and their intangible assets have decreased significantly. So it's important to realize that eventually you have to pay down debt, and you do it either with cash flow or by issuing more shares. Okay, so number four of six, is cash flow growing? To answer a question, is a company growing? I want to quickly explain how I see the difference between cash flow and free cash flow. Cash flow is used to determine how much cash goes in and out of the business. So it gives you a good understanding of the company. Free cash flow is basically used to value a company through the discounted cash flow or DCF method. So here we see they both had patchy net cash flow with Aave looking less consistent and trendy. All right, let's move on to number five of six is the dividend growing consistently. This slide came from a presentation Aave did at a JP Morgan healthcare conference. We see that they announced a $5 billion increase to their stock repurchase program and that they have had a total shareholder return of 224% since 2013, which is incredible. We see they've increased their quarterly dividend by 168% in just six years, with some years having multiple increases in them. So here we see AbbVie's dividend history from the time they split off from Abbott in the upper left, courtesy of Seeking Alpha, and Amgen's on the upper right, and my spreadsheet on the bottom. We see that AbbVie's stock sparkline graph is red, which means it's price today is less than where it was a year ago, and Amgen's is green, which means it is higher today than it was a year ago. AbbVie's dividend today is $4.28 a share and has an amazing 5.7% yield. Amgen's dividend today is $5.80 a share with a decent 2.8% yield. AbbVie's three-year dividend compound annual growth rate is 21.1%, which is just outstanding. Amgen's is at 18.7%, also incredible. I calculated AbbVie's five-year dividend compound annual growth rate as 21.7% compared to Amgen's at 18.9%. So those are just wonderful dividend growth rates, some of the best you'll find out there. There wasn't enough history from AbbVie as an independent entity to do a 10-year one, so I didn't include that. What those compound annual growth rates mean is that a five-year yield on costs on AbbVie is an incredible 15% as compared to Amgen's okay 7%. AbbVie's 10-year yield on cost would be 41%, which is just amazing, compared to Amgen's 16%, which is nice. 
AbbVie's 15-year yield on cost would be 111%, which is ridiculous, compared to AbbVie's 38%, which is still great. And then it goes Cuckooville at year 20, where AbbVie is at 296% yield on cost compared to Amgen's 90%. I'll get left out of the building if I even mention AbbVie's 30-year or 40-year yield on cost, so I won't. Okay, I will. The year 40 yield on cost, assuming they maintain their current trends, would be a dividend growth rate of 15,147%. Thank you. I'm done. QED. Rip. That's all she wrote. Amgen's would also be ridiculous at 2,889. AbbVie has 47 years of increasing their dividend if you count their time when they were part of Abbott. That means that they're almost a dividend king, which is part of the reason they are a popular dividend investor stock to own. I imagine we'll see quite a bit more buyers in three years if AbbVie becomes a dividend king. Amgen has eight years of increasing their dividend. And finally, we see that they both have healthy payout ratios of around 50%. So AbbVie blows Amgen out of the water as a dividend play. Let's look at what's going on with share buybacks. Looking at the last three years, we see that AbbVie has lowered their shares outstanding by 10%, which is good, and Amgen has been spectacular with a 24% reduction from their smaller base. Okay, finally, number six of six is the stock price growing over a decent period of time to help us answer the question, is a company growing? So let's look at total returns of AbbVie compared to Amgen and the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's Total Return Drift Calculator. We'll pick the year AbbVie was formed to keep the time frames the same. Otherwise, I'd have gone for a longer duration. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K into AbbVie, Amgen, and Spy in 2013. The top shows dividends reinvested, the bottoms is dividends not reinvested. We'll focus on dividends reinvested as that's the larger amount. We see that AbbVie's 10K grew to 27.5K, 175% total return. Amgen's 10K grew slightly less to 26.5K, 165% total return and SPY grew the least as it went from 10k to 23k, a 132% total return. So AbbVie wins here, but Amgen does awesome as well, and both return significantly more than the S&P 500. Okay, now onto the number two main item I like to look at when I'm analyzing a business. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to, de to determine that. It is important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. Let's look at macro trends. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3%. Here we see that AbbVie is at 0.89 and Abgen is at 2.9. GuruFocus tells us the industry median is 2.24 and that AbbVie is ranked lower than 87% of their competitors while Amgen is ranked 63% higher. So advantage Amgen here. I don't like AbbVie's debt risk I see, so I factor that into my risk-reward investing equation as well as everything else. And like I always say, double check all these numbers and chat with smarter people than me when you're investing. Number three, the next main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. So these graphs came from macro trends in Guru Focus. We see that in 2019, AbbVie's debt to equity was minus 3.69 and Amgen's was 2.58. We also see that AbbVie's debt to equity was ranked higher than 95% of the companies in, the, in its industry and Amgen is ranked lower than 96% of them. 
We saw from our previous equity graph that shareholders' equity was negative for AbbVie, so it's not surprising to see negative numbers here given that debt to equity equals total liabilities divided by shareholders' equity. Okay, let's see if we think that they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT's at a reasonable level. Looking at their latest numbers, we see that AbbVie is at $7.12 billion and Amden is at $9.85 billion for EBIT. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times their net interest payment. Looking at AbbVie's balance sheet, we find their interest is about $1.4 billion, so it's within the range I like to see, which implies their interest payments are covered. Okay, the number four main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is to understand their profitability. Let's look at return on equity. Normally I expect to see 10% to 15% to cover their cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. Here we see that AbbVie's ROE is negative 59% and Amgen's is 65%, but let me explain why negative ROE can in fact be fine and how it can be bad. So ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholder equity. Thus, if shareholder equity is negative, then ROE will also be negative if the company earned a profit, which we saw they did. But you have to be careful because the ROE can also be negative if the company has a negative net income, thus it is losing money, but it has a positive shareholder's equity. Having positive net income and negative shareholder equity is more indicative of a potential future rebound than is having negative net income and positive shareholder equity. Normally, the higher the ROE, the better, as it means the company is more effectively using its equity to make profits. So when shareholder equity is negative, then an extremely high negative number can be a good indicator for success because positive net income is high compared to negative shareholder equity. Conversely, a low negative number shows that net income is small compared to the negative shareholder's equity. And worse than that is having a positive ROE when shareholder's equity is negative because that means the company is losing money. A net income that is negative divided by a negative shareholder's equity means a positive ROE, but that is obviously a terrible situation. So you can't just take the ROE at face value. You have to understand why it is what it is. That being said, some investors don't feel ROE is useful when shareholder's equity is negative, but you can for a variety of things as long as you remember the rules I just laid out. Now let's look on return on assets, or ROA. ROA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all the money it has and uses that to make more money. ROA is a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. Here we see that AbbVie's most recent ROA is 6.88% and Amgen's is 12.38%, so Amgen is better than AbbVie. GuruFocus tells us that AbbVie is ranked higher than 71% of its competitors and that Amgen is ranked higher than 88% of its competitors. Okay, the last profitability metric we'll look at is net margin. I like net profit margin because it's a decent metric in just a single figure to gauge how effectively management is running the business. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Low margin businesses are things like grocery stores or airlines and they're often under 3%. I like to see solid net profit margins because that often gives a business more optionality and durability to survive hard times. Here we see that Abby's net margin is at 12.623% and Amgen's is a lot better at 33.77%. Okay, let's move from their financials to community involvement, charitable giving, and their environmental, social, and governance work, along with special entities they might support. I pulled this from a deck on their website. 
AbbVie has donated around 40,000 hours of research time to help with neglected tropical diseases, malaria, and tuberculosis. Their employees have volunteered for almost 100,000 hours in their communities. In 2018, AbbVie made a total of $350 million in charitable contributions to U.S. nonprofit organizations, including a $50 million donation to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital to enhance and expand patient and family-centered care. The contributions provided AbbVie with the opportunity to support charities creating long-term impact in communities in need, including Puerto Rico and a slew of cities across America. Now let's move on to their executive leadership team. The average tenure across their top eight execs is over 14 years, which is great to see. Many of them worked at Abbott prior to AbbVie spinning off. AbbVie's CEO is Richard Gonzalez. Mr. Gonzalez has a 30-plus year career at AbbVie and its original parent company, Abbott. He had a variety of roles he served in previously, including EVP of Products, President, and COO, where he oversaw a variety of functions including commercial operations, R&D, and manufacturing. Here's an interesting clip from PBS of Mr. Gonzalez speaking right before Congress about drug prices. I'm Richard Gonzalez, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer of AbbVie, a company dedicated to developing new innovative medicines for some of healthcare's most challenging diseases, such as cancer, Alzheimer's, viral infections, and autoimmune diseases. Since our inception in 2013, AbbVie has invested approximately $50 billion in pursuit of that goal. However, because we are tackling some of medicine's most challenging problems, solutions don't come easy, nor without significant risk. Where we have succeeded, <clears throat> we have been able to provide cures for fatal diseases like hepatitis C and significantly alter the disease progression for certain cancers, lessening the burden of illness on patients and on the healthcare system. This is what the 30,000 employees of AbbVie are dedicated to doing. Mr. Gonzalez took some heat recently as some of his bonuses tied towards how well drugs like Humira do. Interestingly, he's a rare bird in the sense that he, while he attended the University of Houston and was majoring in biochem, he actually didn't earn his degree. So it's neat to see someone make it to the top in a Fortune 500 company without a degree. He was once diagnosed with throat cancer while working at Abbott, so he truly has skin in the game understanding the mission they're on and the impact if they fail. The whole drug pricing discussion has become elevated in recent years as prices have gone up. That being said, I really feel for anyone negatively impacted and having to deal with horrific life-altering diseases. I'm sure that no one can imagine what that is like until they actually experience it. Okay, let's assess how the CEO has done, and one way we can do that is look at how the stock has performed since he's taken office. Here we see AbbVie in black, SPY in blue, and Amgen in purple. We see that SPY and Amgen have both increased by 87%, but AbbVie has only increased by 61%, so underperforming. I had mentioned compensation, so let's see how Mr. Gonzalez compares to other top CEOs. Here we see that the CEO, Rick Gonzalez, is one of the higher compensated biotech CEOs out there at $21 million in 2018. We see that Amgen CEO, Robert Bradway, is up there at $18.6 million. Alright, let's jump on to concerns and risks. There's a variety of risks you need to be aware of that can impact a company like AbbVie, and I'll cover some of them. They have a lot of debt, more than many other biopharmers. I think Pfizer is kind of in the same ballpark as them. The overall healthcare industry is at risk, especially based on which political party is in power. This could mean facing changing regulatory risk or something even more impactful to AbbVie. There is significant pressure to provide healthcare for lower costs, Thus, this evolving landscape could negatively impact them. The disparity in pharmacy pricing around the world could impact their U.S. bottom line. 
Trump has called for a variety of solutions, but so far nothing has actually changed. This could impact the entire industry depending on which direction it goes. Losing patent exclusivity is a risk and issue to be aware of, as I've mentioned with Humira, which loses key protections in 2023, and it pertains to other drugs of theirs as well. There is a risk that the allergen deal could have issues. Remember that they've integrated other acquisitions in the past, including Pharma, Slicklix, and Stemcentrics, amongst others. So hopefully they can capitalize on their needed synergies and growth. It's also important that the combined new entity will be able to deleverage fast enough to address the giant debt AbbVie is taking on before Humira and other medications lose patent protection. Another thing to be aware of is that AbbVie's research and development efforts might not succeed in developing and marketing commercially successful products and technologies, which may cause its revenues and such to be adversely impacted. I was curious about how AbbVie would do in a recession, but since they haven't been around long enough, let's look at how Amgen did. We see Amgen in black and the S&P 500 in blue. We see they both took a big hit in the last recession, and then they both recovered at approximately the same rate. So if we want to make a guess, it's reasonable to conclude that AbbVie would also be similarly negatively impacted in a recession. Regulatory and tax changes could also impact them in a positive or negative way. Adverse outcomes of litigation could negatively impact them. Currency fluctuations could help or hinder them, given a material amount of their business isn't in North America. Economic sanctions, tariff changes, wars, and large political changes could also impact them. And as they become more dependent on technology, then outages or cybersecurity incidents could negatively impact them. Advia's threats from companies like Amgen, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and the like, so all of those competitors are risks. Finally, AbbVie has debt obligations that could adversely affect its business and its ability to meet its obligations. So, those are some risks that I thought of and I found out in their 10K. So, big question, is it worth buying at today's price? Let's look at a discounted cash flow calculator on Guru Focus to see what they say. Here we see that AbbVie's stock price is around $74 and its fair value is $29, so it's overpriced with a minus 153% margin of safety. It has Amgen at a stock price of $201 and a DCF of $159, so overpriced with a minus 26% margin of safety. Remember, you can go to the calculator on Guru Focus and change the default assumptions to see how the fair value is impacted. So you can change the years of terminal growth or the discount rate or whatever you want to change. Okay, let's look at their PEs. Here we see that AbbVie is at a 27 PE and an awesome 7.73 forward PE. Amgen is at a 15.91 PE and a good 13.024 PE. Guru Focus tells us the industry median PE is a 19, so AbbVie's spendy and Amgen looks good. Someone asked me if I could elaborate on the SP500 PE data, so I'll do that. As I said in my Starbucks video, the SP500 has an average PE of about 22 right now. So this chart is from mallpl.com and it shows it at 22.1. We can see the average PE data for the S&P 500 charted back to the 1800s, and you can see the 22 is a bit high. The average has been 15.76, and the median has been 14.78. The lowest average PE ever for the S&P 500 was 5.31 in December of 1917, and the highest PE ever was 123.73 in May of 2009. That's crazy, Bill. So Amgen looks more compelling than AbbVie for the short term, with the long term looking better for AbbVie. And I always kind of play for the long term. Let's look at what analysts are thinking about AbbVie. 
Per market beat, Abvi saw an increase in shorting interest in August. Currently, 3.5% of the shares of the stock are sold short. To give you a frame of reference, Tesla is notorious for being a polarizing stock, and it has about 27% of its shares sold short. Here we see that today Abvi's analyst consensus rating is a hold, with a consensus analyst price target of 89.5, so that's around a 21% upside from today's price. You can compare that to six months ago when the consensus remained a hold at a price target of $94. We see that for Amgen they rated a buy as compared to 180 days ago when, where they had it a hold. And they have the price target at $217, which is a 29% upside. I pulled the insider trading data from NASDAQ and I found this interesting data point that one of their independent directors, Roxanne Austin, has been buying Abvi shares like mad at around a $66 price. I love to see that as it normally means they feel deeply confident in the stock. Abvi believes they will hit a 10% compound growth rate in sales over the next five years, and if they do that, then I think the stock should fly. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on Abvi? Are you going to buy, hold, or sell? You might also want to consider evaluating Allergen as a potential buy right now. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and you're responsible to determine what actions you take in your portfolio, such as buying and selling. I think Abvi is a buy if you can get it around $70 and you are comfortable with the risks. You also need to be the type of person who doesn't freak out with a bit of short-term movement. If so, then it's worth considering it. I did. Of course, I say that for myself based on where I sit with my financial situation and my risk tolerances and understanding of the market. You obviously have your own set of criteria and your financial condition which I don't know about, so that's where you need to make a decision on this. Alright, let's jump into a copy of my portfolio where I'm just showing the last nine stocks that I have, and I thought we could start on the portfolio allocation pie, and then kind of zoom in and go from there. So we see that currently with these stocks, retail's at 23.4%, healthcare's at 25.2%, entertainment's at 7.2%, energy's at 9.9%, financials are at 21.6%, and then we have industrials at 12.7%. Scroll in. Okay. So here we see Abvi and got 473.8 shares of it. Today, a lot of the market is green. We see, let me reload this. There we go. So we see that in the last year, Abvi has gone down which makes sense because I bought it down here. Current PE 20-ish, forward PE 7.27, DDM doesn't work for it. It is in the healthcare industry. Annual dividend $4.28. They tend to increase their dividends around January and the next payment will be November 15th. Current yield is around 5.7%. Three-year dividend compound annual growth rate is 21.1%, and the five-year dividend compound annual growth rate that I pulled from a website said 16.9%. Can't do a 10-year because they haven't been in existence for 10 years, but when I manually calculated a five-year dividend compound annual growth rate, I got 21.75, and it just depends on the time frames. I do it from Q1 of 2014 to Q1 of 2019, so when the website did, they must use a different time frame. We see that the 
Average weighted five-year dividend company growth rate is 14.73%, and the average weighted dividend yield, or the starting yield of the portfolio, is 3.17%. I have about $35,000 of ABV, and that takes the portfolio up to 206598 It drips $2,028 a year. And so the portfolio currently is dripping 6,549. So good payout ratio. They've got 47 years of consecutive dividend increases. No cuts or delays. So the average weighted years of increasing dividends is 19.46 for the portfolio. It's an aristocrat, 0.99 beta. So average weighted beta for the portfolio is 1.01 .01. market cap 110 billion average weighted market cap for the portfolio 136 billion and then let me jump into a copy of the dividends i've received so far so this was september so travelers paid out 122.85 goldman sachs paid out 138.67 home depot paid out 126.48 Chevron paid out $206.24 and Pfizer paid $161.41 for a total of $755.65. These are all blacked out um, and I've deleted rows of stocks that paid out dividends, but I haven't revealed yet, so I've kind of removed those. And then this is a quarterly view that I have, so July, August, and September. I'm starting a new one for October, and we can see that. In August, AppVie paid out $498.62. And so then all those got reinvested. And so the, the next payoff for AppVie will be above that. And we see Caterpillar paid out and Starbucks paid out. So that's for August for the months for the stocks that I've shown. Um, received dividend checks for $813.01, which were all reinvested. And we see that Disney paid out in July. All right. Thanks, folks. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, Keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.